Pentecost services are at 11 a.m. that morning, by the way. One service only. And then we'll have a potluck inside. We don't care what the weather is. So we're going to have the potluck inside where it's air-conditioned, where we can sit around some tables. The last time we're going to gamble on uh, conditions. I think all of you have heard of a very unfortunate and a very sad suicide recently in the parent church. I won't go into that in detail in case you haven't. It doesn't need to be bandied about. In case you have, you know what I'm talking about. Several years ago, there was a similar suicide. I was seated at my desk in Ambassador College. The dean of students called me and he said he had very bad news that a young student had just jumped off the bridge over near the college and down toward the Rose Bowl called Suicide Bridge in Pasadena. And of course, I was shocked. The fire department and the police department were already there, the resuscitation squad or the paramedics, I guess they called them today. And of course, it was too late because the young man fell about a hundred feet or whatever to the concrete and he was dead. I want to talk to you about a subject that I think is perhaps one of the most fundamentally basic and important and which I believe is new knowledge being revealed to the Church of God International, and knowledge which has been concealed from tens of thousands of members of God's Church. I believe that misknowledge or misunderstanding has led directly to suicide. I think it has led toward depression toward feelings of inadequacy and inferiority and toward guilt complexes so enormous that many people are absolutely convinced that they can never make it into the kingdom of God. I know because I have shared in a certain amount of that guilt complex, a certain amount of those feelings of inferiority, especially following sermons by particularly powerful evangelists and speakers who basically would go through some of the scriptures I'm about to rehearse with you, which deal with human nature, what we are. A teaching began to grow in the Church of God in about the last decade. Prior to that time, you never heard it. Back in the 1950s and 60s, you always heard, certainly Mr. Wid Boyce remembers this, he was there in Big Sandy, the Reese's and so many others, you heard human nature is a mixture of good and evil. And you heard that for decades in the Church of God. That teaching happens to be quite correct. For about the last decade or more, you have heard that human nature contains a part of Satan's nature. You've heard it discussed and described that Satan the devil is called the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. He is called in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, the God of this world, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the glorious light of the gospel of God should shine unto them. And you've heard many, many times the following scriptures. Let's turn to some of them. First of all, Job and the 42nd chapter. This is one of the most dynamic and one of the most powerful in all the Bible having to do with repentance. If you'll turn back to the book of Job just before the Psalms, and you will read of Job's great revulsion of himself when he finally saw himself in comparison with God and how God actually caused Job to focus in on the great Leviathan, the great creatures of the sea. He took him through, we read three chapters of a conversation having to do with the power of creation, with the power of the universe, the power of the earth, the great creatures on the earth, weather, the cyclical nature of reproduction, etc., 
And finally, Job answered the Eternal, chapter 42 and verse 1, and said, I know that you can do everything and that no thought can be withheld from thee. Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered that I understood not. And here he's been eloquently defending himself for all of these chapters and maintaining his own righteousness. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak, I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me, meaning an urgent request, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. How many times have I borne down on that scripture of how people hear the name Jesus Christ, but the real Jesus Christ of the Bible does not really take form or shape in their mind, but a completely false and a counterfeit Christ. But now mine eye seeth thee. So seeing the greatness of God and the goodness of God and the incredible, fantastic intelligence of God, the omniscience and omnipresence of God, he said, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. The title of an article I'm working on now for the next issue of the International News is Wherefore I Abhor Myself, end of quote. And then, of course, the article is going to cover a good deal of what I want to cover with you here today. Now, next, let's turn to Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, one of the favorite proof texts about we rotten, sinning, no good, worthless, wretched, abhorrent human beings. And in some degree, that, of course, is true. But I think, you know, balance is a knife's edge, and I believe that over the last decade or so, a lot of people have lost their balance about this thing of human nature, and to the point that some young men and women have been so guilt-ridden and have been so deeply morose and, I think, defeated and discouraged and lacking any kind of confidence, feeling that they must not have anything at all in their mind that you can call self-confidence that they must have nothing at all that is of self, nothing of which they can be self-satisfied or perhaps proud of anything at all that goes on inside of themselves is suspect and is of no value in the sight of God. And there are many scriptures that have been used over the years to reinforce that belief. Chapter 17, verse 9, The heart, your mind, your heart, my mind, my heart, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? Now, when something is that rotten, that's pretty bad, isn't it? Reminds me of a record by Shelley Berman I've got. And he's going on and on about the way this girl made him feel. And he finally says, well, you know, Shirley, I mean, I was the only one there at the party that was standing up, you know. I mean, every people, everybody else wears white socks, but because I'm wearing white socks, you wouldn't let me sit down in the whole evening, you know. And I cut my thumb, and you're laughing. I'm bleeding, you're laughing. You know, Shirley, sometimes I think you don't like me very much. He's going on and on about, well, now, what is it? What is it that you really don't like about me, Shirley? Come on and tell me. Yeah, uh-huh. 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 Yeah, what else? Yeah, what else? It goes on and on. Oh, now, come on, Shirley. I mean, when you're holding hands and your hands are sweating, I mean, who can tell whose hand is doing the sweating? I mean, you know, Shirley, you, you just make me feel, well, I don't know, you make me feel rotten. You know, and it's a really funny record. But she just made the poor guy feel absolutely rotten. That's the way I think a lot of sermons have made a lot of people feel rotten. And, of course, we hear scriptures such as this. And because we are not given some of the balance that I want to give you in this sermon today, people tend to feel 
that there is absolutely nothing that could be called, quote, good, and believe it or not, there are several different shadings of meanings of the word good in the English language, and we will see there are several usages of the word good in the Bible, even in connection with Christ himself. But many people have been convinced that there is not one iota or one little shred of good inside a human being who is carnal and who doesn't have the Holy Spirit of God. Is that true? Has there never been a human being short of conversion, you know, pre-baptism, who has had anything at all good about it? Is it as worthless as one tiny drop of rain in the middle of a huge frontal system in the vastness of the Pacific Ocean and is as quickly lost, that goodness? We'll ask that as we go through. Let's notice over in... Uh, let me get first Isaiah 64, 6 is another very important proof text with regard to that. We are all as an unclean thing. Isaiah 64, 6. And all our righteousnesses, meaning every good deed we can accomplish in comparison with God, are as filthy rags. Powerful words. What does it mean? Is this really taken to mean that no matter what deed you might accomplish, whether it means stopping by the roadside and trying to bind up the wounds of someone who has been injured, maybe setting a broken leg, maybe sitting up with a very sick person, traveling hundreds of miles to visit an afflicted or a lonely person, etc., 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 whatever good deed you might think of, is really of no value in the sight of God Almighty, but is as a dirty filthy, oily rag you would pick up off the floor of a filthy garage with all kinds of grease and gunk on it. Any deed you might accomplish in your entire life, from the time you're one year of age until you're 35, as long as you weren't baptized, you didn't have the Holy Spirit of God, hands were not yet laid on you, no one prayed over you and asked you to receive God's Holy Spirit, your righteousness was as a filthy, oily, cruddy rag. Is that what the Bible is really telling us, or is there a balance to this that people have missed? And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee, for thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. Here is a cry toward God, as if it were the church, calling out to God for his mercy and his forgiveness, and Isaiah as if a spokesman for the people of Judah, who most assuredly had strayed far from God, is calling out to God and saying, all the good deeds we have done because our rulers and our leaders have gone into rank paganism is as a filthy rag in your sight. This is a collective statement of a nation which collectively has broken God's laws, has gone completely astray, and no matter what good deeds were done by individuals here and there, so long as the king and the entire leadership of the nation was contrary to God, he is drawing this analogy. There are many others. We can remember what David said, There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Surely every man at his best state is a liar, etc. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let's notice Romans 7.18. It says, the Apostle Paul now, talking about human nature, for I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. 
For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. So Paul says, nothing good lives inside of me. Really? What do you mean good? What, what does this word mean when he says, nothing good dwells inside of me? And then he goes on to, to say, because, you see, for or because to will, to want to, is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, according to God's law, I find not. Notice what Jesus said, and I think we'll begin to get a little more balance now in Matthew 19 and 17, and we have to ask a very, very strong question about this. Not that we're going to disagree for one instant with Jesus, but we're going to understand that the word good can have several different shadings of meanings and can be used in different ways in the English language, and there is a way or a manner in which Christ used it, which is not the very same manner in which it is used in some of these other scriptures. In Matthew 19, verse 16, Behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why do you call me good? You know, the ancient manuscripts are divided on the real meaning of that. Some of them say, Why do you ask me concerning that which is good? One there is who is good, and that is God. It isn't really clear in the original Greek. As translated into the King James, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God, which I think is misleading. I don't really believe Jesus meant to say that, that there was nothing at all good about him. If he did say that, then we have the clearest example of how in using the word good, if he did, in the Greek, of himself. He is using it only in the comparison between a human, physical, limited being, as he was then in the flesh, and then the greatness of God, and saying that God only is good, meaning perfect. And that while there was the imperfection of physical weakness, let's say, the inability to run a three-minute mile, which Christ couldn't have done. That's not blasphemy. He didn't come to be the greatest track star the world had ever seen. He would not have been able to have run a three-minute mile. That's all there is to it. He probably couldn't have picked up 540 pounds and have been a great uh, weightlifter or something. So he's using it in a comparative sense. There is one good, that is, God, but if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, we all know the Bible says that we must repent. Repent of what? Repent of sin. What is sin? We all know 1 John 3, 4 is sin is the transgression of the law. Now, another question having to do with goodness. Do I have the right as a human physical leader of a church organization to set what is and what is not sin for you? Do I have that right? Or would the collective ministry and perhaps the ministerial council in the meaning of the word of, uh, well, the best form of perhaps God's form of democracy, not that there would be voting on it, but with unanimity of opinion with the ministerial council and perhaps uh, the three or four or five of the leading ministers of that council were all to agree and to back me up on some doctrine that I were to put in. And let's say that it would be a doctrine that would rule against men's neckties. And I would be able to try to proof text that. And I would try to show you, going back and giving you examples and showing you pictures out of ancient history books about the way Jesus dressed 
and how he wore a robe and a coat of uh, just one uh, piece of cloth that didn't have seams in it and show you that seams are perhaps sinful. Or that mixing of cloth, like having little rubber bands in the top of men's hose, is sinful. And we would rule on that. We would say, all right, from now on, the Church of God International does not recognize men's neckties. Well, along comes a brand new member, and the member begins to study and kind of notices that all the men are in shirts or maybe uh, casual uh, jackets or whatever, but no ties. And he shows up, looks around someday, and he's the only person wearing a necktie. So he asks a question. Well, we, we don't wear neckties here. But you don't. Well, then he goes to the minister and he says, why don't you wear neckties? Well, because Mr. Armstrong says we shouldn't. But what if I do wear a necktie? Well, that's a sin. You're going contrary to what the human leader of God's church has plainly said with the backing of the entirety of the ministry. And if you do that, that is a sin. But why is it a sin? Because Mr. Armstrong says it is a sin. Now, let's go to the church that was extant when Jesus walked the earth, back in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, briefly. You know, every time we go through the days of unleavened bread, we preach about leaven. And inevitably, we will go to that place where Jesus really took issue with the Pharisees and said that their doctrine was a doctrine of leavening. Now, remember that he said very clearly that these people were the successors of that body of belief which represented Moses and the prophets. Notice chapter 23, verse 1 and 2. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They were the inheritors of the legacy of the law and the prophets and the Psalms or the writings of the Bible. And as such, they represented church officialdom. Now, you know that the Roman government set up a system that was not unlike the old Persian satrapies. A satrap was not anything less, really, than a state, and what they did was, in their conquered territories, allow as much autonomous self-government as possible, because the more they could ask people to set up like a puppet government under their own garrisons, the fewer armed forces they had to spare for all of these countries. So in Judea, there were really three separate bodies that you could call, uh, could uh, exercise armed force. There was the Roman garrison of a certain number here and there, and perhaps quite small until later on in about 70 or 69 A.D. And we hear here and there of a centurion in perhaps a city as large as uh, maybe where Jesus grew up, up at Nazareth or in Capernaum. But that's only a hundred men for perhaps six, eight, or ten thousand citizens. The second armed body was Herod's own private army. Herod had his own palace guard and his own private army. And the third group, like a state police, was, believe it or not, the Sanhedrin and deputies of the temple who were just like uh, a police force, except they didn't necessarily carry arms. The Sanhedrin had the power of life and death over the people. When a person was brought before the Sanhedrin and two or three witnesses came in and said, yes, he did blaspheme the temple, he did do this or that or the other against the Talmud, and they agreed that he did, the Sanhedrin could pronounce sentence, and the officers of that court, of that Jewish priesthood, took him out, buried him up to about here, and the people stood around, and the priests themselves cast the first stones, and they stoned him to death. 
Now, Jesus acknowledged that as they acted within the law, within that written body of the Word of God, they sat in Moses' seat and they represented the traditions and the laws that were handed down from the time of Moses. Notice verse 3, All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do you not after their works, for, notice, they say, that's oral, and they do not. So it seems to be a little conflicting, but let's see where is the conflict. Whatever they bid you observe, that observe and do. What are the parameters of that? How do we understand that? Obviously, he's saying they sit in Moses' seat. He is telling us, he is telling them that they only had to do that which was required according to the law of Moses. But when the Pharisees strayed away from the law of Moses and they said orally, apart from or separate from or in addition to the law of Moses, their work, something that they concocted, they say and do not, notice verse 4, for they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne. Now, are there practices, certain things that are required of people in the church of God which appear at first blush to be grievous? I, I think to people in the world, even perhaps the laws having to do with clean and unclean meats. Certainly, people do not understand the edict, which certainly those who understand in God's church might not agree with anyway, against birthdays. And that's why we've written a very important article on that subject to really clear that up as to whether or not you're putting your arms around a six-year-old child and maybe giving him a little candle and a cupcake or a special dinner or a present and a hug, congratulations, you're now six years of age, is and uh, is a sin or, or constitutes sin. And if it is a sin, are you and your child going to burn in Gehenna fire for saying happy birthday to you? I mean, really, are you going to go to Gehenna fire? I have to ask some embarrassing questions. Will a lady who plucks an eyebrow, maybe she grows them right straight across the top of her nose. Maybe she doesn't like them in the middle. Most people don't have a lot of them in the middle. Some people do. Some people have eyebrows that look like uh, old John L. Lewis or uh, Leonid Brezhnev. He, he looks like it doesn't matter how much it rained. Not a bit of it would ever get in his eyes. Of course, he's dead now. But how about a poor woman that, that had eyebrows like Leonid Brezhnev? looked like a fur rug up there. I mean, what is the lady to do about it? Now, you know, and I know, whoops, sorry, uh, it doesn't matter. You and I both know that the only reason a woman would ever wear makeup is out of a desire to entice men. Is that right? Is that the reason? I mean, here's Joe, he's sitting there beside his wife, and I think my wife has a little bit on, a lot of you ladies. Is that the reason you're, you're trying to entice all these other men? I mean, really, if I thought, I saw my wife in there, and she's got the little thing, and she's trying to steady your hand, and if you ever go by in the bathroom, you know, and you bump your wife while she's doing this, oh, you, it's bad news. You just stay out of there, you know, because if the mascara goes clear up here somewhere, then the repair is going to take a lot longer than putting it on in the first place. But really, if I thought in my mind, uh-huh, she's doing that to entice some of these men. I mean, that, that would really upset me. What about if a lady has a kind of a pallid complexion, kind of mottled or splotched or a little gray, a little under the weather, maybe she's been sick for the last week, 
and she'd kind of like to appear to be a little happier, a little more up than generally she would appear if she simply went without a single little bit or a touch of, as they call it, blush or something like that. Is natural always the best? Now, we might ask that question about the Garden of Eden. What did God tell Adam and Eve when he put them in the Garden of Eden? Don't you touch a blade of grass. Do not in any way, you know, prune a single tree. Do not pluck a rose. Do not rip up a root. Don't pull a weed. No, there weren't any weeds then, but not yet. But uh, whatever you do, do not touch it because the grass should grow long and the trees should droop down and the bushes should just keep on getting bigger and bigger until you're fighting your way through them and you can't even see. Or didn't he tell Adam and Eve that which he had created in its natural form should be dressed and kept? And he put him there like a gardener and said, dress it and keep it. Is it wrong for a man or a woman to pluck, singe, shave, clip, or rub off, if all they got is a round rock, body hair from any part of the body? And could I and could the ministry of the Church of God International make it a sin for a woman to pluck an eyebrow? Question. I think a very valid question to an awful lot of people in God's church. Verse uh, 5, going on here, For all their works they do, for to be seen of men. They make broad their flattery. So it's perfectly all right then, apparently, for the leaders of the priesthood to really be bedecked. Now, the leaders could wear like a uniform, you see. They wore a priestly robe, and there was a lot of glamour attached to that. You know, if you grow up in a society where the leaders, you are habitually accustomed to seeing them in a very regal kind of a robe, maybe a beautiful color with a kind of a gold, uh, which would take place of like the epaulets that an officer would wear. They're quite striking. Big bunch of fruit salad that I've made fun of in the past, you know. Shoulder boards, big hat with a lot of scrambled eggs on it, fouled anchor up on top. Man, that... That's impressive. It makes a man look taller than he really is. It calls attention to the breadth of his shoulders, even if he's a little old squirt like that. But he just looks bigger, you know, a little bitty old guy. Looks very impressive, especially in Germany. They had the knack of making that peaked cap even higher than most other nations, and their military uniforms looked military indeed. Nothing was more exotic and, uh, and maybe awesome to a young person in that Hebrew religion than a priest. A real tall priest striding slowly along Solomon's porch in the full uh, regal-looking robe with his broad, broad, broad phylacteries. Oh, by the way, some new information to discovered on that. I didn't know the other day. Ron Dart was telling me. He found a historical source. It talked about the tassels on their garment. I didn't know, but instead of having the sign of rank on their shoulders, they had them on the fringes of their garments. And there were tassels, and you could glance, and instead of, like in the military, glancing and seeing whether it's one star, meaning a brigadier general, or three stars for a major general, or two for a lieutenant general, you would glance at the fringe and see by its width and by the tassels and their arrangement and how decorous they were as to the rank, whether it's the high priest or what. And so they had these signs of rank. Now, they really went into great decoration. They made large their borders of their garments and their flactories, and loved the uppermost rooms at feasts, always had the reserved table. In the banquet, the head table was always the one for the highest mucky muck. And chief seats in the synagogues. They wanted the front row in church. 
and greetings in the markets. And if you didn't greet them, you were in trouble. When they walk by, if you don't say, good morning, sir, you know, you are in trouble. If you're hurt, you're down, you're busy, you didn't see them, you're still in trouble. They were there, you were there, you should have called out a greeting. Be you not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and you are all equal. You can substitute that word and it works, it fits. You are all brethren. Call no man your father upon the earth as a spiritual title. Now, a little later on, he begins to really take issue with these people. Verse 13, he calls them hypocrites. Verse 14 and 15, hypocrites. Verse 16, you blind guides. Let's notice verse 16. Woe unto you blind guides, which say... Now, here's a part of their oral teaching. Those who sat in Moses' seat. Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple... You see how they tried to spell everything out? I can just hear some of the conferences they must have had behind the scenes. Now look, you know, uh, whatever his name might have been, uh, Aaron or, or Abel or, or somebody, Adam, uh, if we don't spell this out, how are we going to administer it? I mean, people are going to be asking a lot of questions. They're going to want to know what is right and what is wrong. And so we need to spell it out for these people because we'll have total confusion. People doing all sorts of things. The only way to make them really right and to lock everybody in is to spell it out. So they tried to spell out whether or not it was all right to say, I tell you, buy the gold of the temple, or I tell you, buy the temple, thus and such and so and so, because people seem to need to have to have a buy word and say, buy my beard, or buy the head of my, the hair of my head, or buy my mother's honor, or whatever. So they tried to really define that very technically. You fools and blind, for which is the greatest, the gold or the temple that, of course, makes the gold holy because it happens to be in there. And they also say, whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing, but whosoever swears by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty, you fools and blind. Now, there are many more examples, and I could take a lot of time with it. What about the occasion when Jesus and the disciples were going through the wheat field, and I've had a call to my attention that was not corn, and that's true, it wasn't. The Indians grew corn, and corn wasn't even discovered until centuries later. Maize and so on, and finally domesticated to become corn. But the Bible calls it corn, but it probably was ears of wheat. And they simply, you ever done that in a wheat field? You take the ear, and you just like this, and then the chaff kind of rolls off, and you pick the grains out. Well, even as he said of the Passover, one needeth not to wash one's feet, for ye are bathed, and you are clean, etc. Uh, but we know that Jesus and the disciples often took baths, perhaps daily, perhaps certainly every other day or whatever, on the road, and they were very conscious of cleanliness. But in this occasion, they were not ceremonially washed. They hadn't taken time before they ate this casual food they found in the field to go and to dip their hands like a doctor and to go through the ablutions that were required ceremonially. So the Pharisees come and they say, Why do your disciples eat with unwashing, that is to say, defiled hands? You are breaking the Sabbath. Now they taught. Not only did they teach, but they enforced, and I shudder to think what the consequences were. I'm wondering about it, and I honestly don't know. But it has led me to wonder, did they actually put people to death for infractions of their man-made added traditions. And I think they did. I think they actually went around killing people 
for infractions not just based upon the Ten Commandments and the written laws and the judgments that were handed down through the time of Moses and beyond, but some of their own added do's and don'ts became such a great offense that they very likely might have taken four hapless people out, and because a couple of witnesses said, yes, they did it, they're guilty, they simply stoned them to death. No wonder Jesus Christ of Nazareth really took to task the Pharisees and their doctrine and their religion more than any other thing that angered him and made him angry. It was the Pharisees and their religion. Let's turn to the third chapter of Mark right quickly. He entered into the synagogue, and there was a man there that had a withered hand. Now, a man with a withered hand is a pretty handicapped man. And they watched him whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day. Now. Get into their minds and try to figure out that kind of an attitude. You ever met people like that who are actually religious? They are religious. They knew Jesus had the power to heal. Somehow, over the days, weeks, and months, they had built up in their own minds a straw man called Jesus Christ. They rejected him. They continually buttressed that argument and reinforced and resupported their hatred toward him by all sorts of rationalizations and excuses inside their own minds. But can you notice this? They knew that he had the power to heal, and somehow that knowledge didn't penetrate their hard hearts. They didn't say, he can't heal, except that he is of God. They just didn't say it. Is it possible for a religious person a person to be sitting in Moses' seat, a person who has been brought up in the true religion of God, who has gone to the true religious school, who has gone through the dedication and the privation and the hardship and the rigorous studies to become ordained as a priest, to serve so faithfully he can become a high priest and be a hard-hearted criminal liar. Is that possible? Well, it was during Jesus' day, and you look at these people and you absolutely are amazed at the attitude they had. They watched him whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. So in other words, they were looking not for something good to happen, but they were looking for an excuse, searching for a reason to accuse Jesus. And he said unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he said unto him, Is it lawful, knowing their thoughts, and he did read their thoughts, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life or to kill? They didn't dare answer that. That was an unanswerable question. But they held their peace. They didn't dare. And their consciences were killing them the whole time. And when he looked round about on them with anger, it really did upset him, and he was angry. But the Bible says, Be you angry and sin not. He didn't hate them, but he was angry. He did get angry at that rotten attitude. He wanted to somehow shake that attitude out of those people, but he didn't hate the people that had the attitude. He wanted them to be converted. Being grieved. So see, the anger was a combination of, of hurt and grief and pity, and isn't that awful? And oh, what a pity it is for them to feel that way, being grieved for the hardness of their heart. And he said, you stretch out your hand, and he healed it. So Jesus healed in anger, in righteous indignation and anger. Now, Almighty God has the right, has reserved that right unto himself, to tell us what is and what is not sin. Question. We are about to engage in an activity, and let's in our modern period of time say that we have a church social, 
Somebody hauls out of his uh, cooler a nice big frozen bottle of uh, Chianti and offers you a cup. Seated right across from you is someone who all of their lives, all of his life, has been in the Baptist church and just cannot shake the idea that alcohol is a sin. If you then deliberately, you know, just go to every extreme you can to argue and to cajole and to reason and say, go on, take one, and work with that guy and get him to give in and take one, my question is, if you take of the wine, have you sinned? The answer, I think, is no, isn't it? If he takes of the wine, has he sinned? You bet he has. He really has. He has committed a sin. Let's turn to Romans, the 14th chapter, and show you something. Romans, the 14th chapter, and here is the beginning glimpse of that truth I said that we want to come to understand that I believe is a little new to God's church. I don't think that very many people know it, frankly, and I don't think they apply it in their lives. This deals with people who are weak in the faith and believe they may do one thing or another. Chapter 14, verse 3 says, Let not him that eats despise him that eateth not. In other words, they both do the same thing, whether it's eating or drinking, but the one has a conscience problem and the other does not. Verse 5, One man esteems one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Not God. It has nothing to do with God's holy days, but it says that a man thinks that certain days are propitious for this and that. And remember that some of them came out of an astrological society, and they believed in lucky and unlucky and good and bad and propitious and so on days, days of portent. Verse 5, interesting, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regards it unto the Lord. And he that regards not the day to the Lord, he doesn't regard it. Interesting. Total opposite points of view, each in good, clean conscience toward the Lord, two people doing opposite things. Both of them not sinning. Neither one of them is sinning whether they observe the day or don't observe the day with regard to whatever it is they're going to do on that day. Now let's notice a little later on in verse 14, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. Now he's talking about those things that are clean. It isn't some argument about those things that are unclean like snakes and possums. But to him it esteems anything to be unclean. To him it is unclean. This chapter is plainly telling you, brethren, that human conscience does play a part in getting into the kingdom of God. Now the scripture tells us, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is a sin. What if a person doesn't know to do good and doeth it not? Is it to him a sin? Obviously, no, it is not. He's ignorant of the fact that that particular thing that should be accomplished or done would be a righteous act that he ought to do. Unaware of it, ignorant of it, going along blissfully ignorant, unaware of the fact that he ought to be doing such and such, he doesn't know it. Is he sinning? Question. Will there be people inducted into the church of God after the great tribulation begins? Answer, all of you know, Revelation, the sixth and seventh chapters, yes, 144,000 out of all the tribes of Israel, another vast innumerable number of people from the Gentile races as well as among Israel, but that 144,000 are a specific number of people. 
Are there going to be people in the kingdom of God who predate the giving of God's annual holy days, for example? Someone recently said, took issue with what I had said only as an illustrative point with regard to the efficacy of the holy days and a, com a comment I think I made on the calendar. I mentioned how they had been cleansing the temple and they were a little late and so they had the Days of Unleavened Bread and the Passover a month late back during that great restoration after the rebuilding of the temple. And then it was such a great occasion they decided to keep yet eight other days with great gladness and God blessed them in both and the first was a month late and the second was two months late. And merely to illustrate the point about the efficacy of the holy days, I said, nowhere does God say that the annual holy days which we must count and which God says the ministry are to proclaim in their seasons and which are on a changeable calendar. And God never said a calendar had to have 12 months or 13 months. He just didn't deal with that at all. After you're through with the seventh month, I don't care if you count to 26. Whenever the solar lunar year begins again in the spring, that's your first month. And then the seventh of those months, keeping track of those lunations, on the 15th day of the month is the Feast of Tabernacles. What you do with the rest of the year, God doesn't really care. He is the one that set the sun and the moon and the stars in motion, and he therefore is the one who designed the motion of the heavens and the methods by which we keep time. So just in passing, trying to make sure we understand that when the church proclaims next Sunday is the day of Pentecost, because the ministry has counted from the morrow, beginning with really, after the Sabbath, during the days of unleavened bread, from the day that anciently the priest would go into the field and cut out the wave sheet, exactly seven Sabbaths to be complete, and one day plus fifty, and that is Pentecost, it is the responsibility of the ministry to count that day, to establish that day, and God puts his presence in that day as much as God put his presence in the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread a month late, and then another one, hard on the heels of that, a month and eight days late, and bless them in what they did. Are Abel, Seth, Enoch, Methuselah, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I could go on and on and on, are they going to be in the kingdom of God? We'll deal with that a little later on. I've got to hurry. Yes, they definitely are, aren't they? Did they ever keep a single holy day? I'll come back to another very important question a little later. No, they did not. Now, to him that knoweth to do good, and we know... It's been revealed to us. God has given us that knowledge. We know the holy days are good. We know they keep us in mind of the plan of God. We know they are commanded to us. If we do it not, to us it would be a sin. We would defile God's holy annual Sabbaths if we were to avoid obeying them. But human conscience does play a part. Notice in verse 15, If your brother be greed with your meat... Now, this had to do with regular beef, let's say, that was sold in what was called the shambles. And oftentimes, and I think all the time, basically, the meat was killed in a sacrificial ceremony before some kind of an idol. A lot of people thought that that would contaminate the meat. Other people knew better, like Paul. It didn't do anything at all with regard to the meat. It was perfectly all right to sit down and to eat a cut of meat that only a few hours ago or yesterday was sacrificed to Dagon or Vishnu or somebody. It didn't contaminate the meat. So it didn't bother Paul at all because he knew that. But he said, destroy not him with your meat for whom Christ died. What? Destroy. Look at that. That's a powerful word. Meaning that if you cause a brother who just doesn't understand, who doesn't have the same liberty you have, doesn't have the same knowledge you have, 
and you so hurt him, and you so turn him off, and you so defile his conscience, it is possible for you to destroy him spiritually when what he did was perfectly all right in God's sight. But it defiled his conscience. Then how important is your conscience? And is this old saw that we've heard all of our lives, ignorance of the law is no excuse, does that really apply straight across the board in God's dealings with mankind? Or aren't there certain occasions when Almighty God does overlook ignorance of the absolute total perfection of every Christian deed? And to him it knoweth not to do that good deed, and he doesn't do it, but his conscience is not defiled, he has not destroyed character, he's going along feeling that he's doing all right, he just doesn't really know any better. Has he really lost salvation? I don't think so. I don't think that's been understood. Let not then your good be evil spoken of, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. And I believe the Holy Spirit of God would inspire the church to say, the kingdom of God is not clothing or unclothing. It is not made up or unmade up. It is not neckties or the absence of neckties. It is not facial or leg or underarm hair or the absence of it. It is not to pluck or to pluck eyebrows or pick the hair out of your nose, for pity's sake. There is nothing that is sacred. Whether you hack it, pull it, cut it, singe it, burn it, or pluck it out one by one, I do not believe it will keep you out of the kingdom of God. If a man in this room decides, I'm going to look like Telly Savalas, and it doesn't hurt his conscience any, and his wife doesn't mind, maybe she shines it with a rag every morning before he comes to work, and he decides to come in here, and he likes his bald dome, who are we to worry about it, you know, for pity's sake? There is nothing at all that says you must have hair on the top of your head to be pleasing to God. Remember, Elisha was bald-headed, and as a matter of fact, some kids made fun of him and got in trouble. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy. Now, righteousness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, faith, against which there is no law, and peace, not squabbles and fights and antagonism and hatred, and battles against the powers that be, and joy, not rancor and continual anger and hatred, in the Holy Spirit. For he that in these things serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Verse 20, for meat, a little thing, what you eat, what you put on the table, what you put in your face and masticate between your teeth and ingest into your stomach. Destroy not the work of God, then why destroy the work of God for a necktie or a little bit of makeup on the face or around the eye? All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. His conscience is in play. Hast thou faith? Fine. Have it to yourself before God, quietly and privately in some cases. Practice what you're completely faithful in doing. You like to take a drink now and then? Fine. But it might be good to find out if you have a, a visitor that comes to church or you're in a church occasion. It might be nice to know whether or not you should sit there and down your usual two or three or four, whatever it is, cocktails in an evening. Maybe you'd want to decide to have none at all based upon who you're with. 
Happy is he that condemns not himself in that thing which he allows. And he that doubts is condemned, meaning his conscience is defiled. The word damned is not an original. It doesn't mean that God, you know, damns him or condemns him. It means that he is condemned of his own conscience if he eats, because he eats not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is a sin. And the deed we're talking about here is good. Now let's go back to the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis in chapter 1, and let's ask a very important question about human nature and about Adam and Eve. In chapter 1, we see the beginning of the days and then the creation of the great winged creatures and whales and fish and all that. And finally, we see verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. You know, it's no wonder that human beings are attracted to each other. I've often wondered if a stallion sees an absolutely gorgeous mare out in the field and she is sleek and she's shapely and she's got a nice deep chest and nice slim withers and beautiful rounded rear end and long lacy tail and a nice mane and nice big brown eyes. You know, if you see an absolute thoroughbred, there is nothing more beautiful to me than gorgeous thoroughbred horses when they're highly spirited and so on. I saw a horse auction recently and they would lead the women, oh, women, listen to me, they would lead the female, the mare, in and on three occasions they were going to auction off both the mare and the little foal. And I'd never seen this before. And the little foal, it was so cute about brought tears to my eyes because they'd bring it in and lead it around and around and of course this auctioneer is shouting, you're about to hear your ears explode and pounding on the, the gavel and so on, and two guys beside him and two or three out in the crowd. Uh, I saw one horse sell for about twenty-some thousand dollars. I mean, those were beautiful horses. Well, this little foal would just, it was just like it was plastered to the mother's side. And they'd make the mother turn, that little foal would run under her shoulder and around and under her and maybe nuzzle her a little bit and around the back and look and hide behind her. And I mean, they didn't need to worry about that little bitty Colt getting lost because it was just like, as they say, a stick tight. I mean, that thing was just plastered to that mother. Cutest thing you ever saw. Well, you know, in a lot of ways you can say that the human body is one of the ugliest things you ever looked at. And, I, you know, you see, oftentimes uh, we let ourselves maybe get not quite as, uh, you know, why belabor that, uh, as well formed as we should be or whatever. But nevertheless, I can understand why as we watched the other evening, maybe some of you did, the Miss, Un not Miss Universe, the Miss uh, USA contest, and there were some absolutely lovely examples of young American girls on that program. And as it turned out, the two that we had sort of hoped would be number one and number two got it in exactly that order. I think Miss California and Miss Texas were the number one and number two. Beautiful young girl, just absolutely beautiful. Do we realize that our frame and that our bodies are made in the exact similitude of God? Then why would someone, like I've told that story about the Puerto Rican that swallowed the poison and cut his wrists and poured lighter fluid on himself, set a match, and then jumped out? I mean, that is a case of self-hatred like you've never heard of before. There are people who come to literally abhor themselves to the point they commit suicide and destroy themselves. 
You look at this, God creating man, male and female, in the image of God created he them, verse 27, male and female created he them, and God blessed them, and they weren't converted, and they didn't have the Holy Spirit of God. And notice in verse 31, God looked over all this earth, over everything that he'd made, from heaven below, all over, from one pole to the other, and around the equator. And behold, it was very good. Well, what do you know? Now, Satan hadn't appeared yet, had he? Question. Is human nature, or does human nature, a better way to put it, contain a part of Satan's nature? That's been taught to people for the last decade and a half. Taught because of the concept, as I said before, of Satan being the prince of the power of the air, and the concept that Satan is able to broadcast his evil mind and his perverted attitudes through the vehicle of the air. And that as you live and move and eat and sleep and breathe, you imbibe air into your lungs so that a part of the air of this earth's atmosphere is inside of you at all times, and you're completely surrounded at all times by an envelope of air. You can feel it moving. It's all around you. Now, if Satan is able to broadcast through the air in the same way that if I had a transistor radio, I could hold it up here with no antenna. It has a little built-in one that you can't see. Turn it on, and you can receive hundreds of different waves that are bouncing off the ionosphere, FM waves, line of sight, television waves, line of sight, etc., and we could pick them up right here in the room. Is Satan, just like those broadcasting stations, continually emitting and striking a responsive chord in your little receiver in there somewhere to your brain, a part of his nature and his spirit. You know, some people have taken that to the ultimate extreme. They might say, if they get angry at their child, you little devil, why'd you do that? And some people have tried, because they've been ignorant, to beat the devil out of their children because they think a part of the devil's nature is in a little innocent baby. Is that really true? It would take too long to go through the entire story, but let me just suffice it to say that Adam and Eve in the garden were completely neutral toward God. We have no way of knowing how many hours they spent together, certainly the first Sabbath day, and a lot of it except for whatever time to sleep they spent together. God drew all the animals by in front of Adam and Eve and was curious to see what Adam would call them. He gave Adam instantly a knowledge, I mean the language with which he could communicate. He talked. He had a full, mature man there who was able to think and to reason. And as these animals came by, Adam said, that's this and that's that. And God may have got a chuckle out of it from time to time. And they were together. Now, when God explained about the trees, you can have any of the fruits here. You can see as far as the eye can behold, beautiful bananas and oranges and grape whatever that they had then, grapes and on and on. You can partake of anything but that one tree in the middle of the garden. You can't eat of that. No problem. Oh, is that right? Adam and Eve completely neutral toward God. They were not antagonistic. Romans 8, 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. They were carnal. They had an innate, inborn proclivity for animosity toward God. But that particular chord had not yet been struck. That emotion had not yet been in some way appealed to. It hadn't yet been 
uh, peaked and made evident for what it was. It was, in a sense, asleep in their nature. They were neutral toward God. Along comes Satan the devil in serpentine form and begins to say, God knows better than that. He knows that in the day that you eat of it, you will not surely die. And he appealed to their lust. They broke four or five of the commandments. They put another god in front of themselves. They reached out and stole. They, of course, lusted or coveted, which broke the tenth commandment. Pardon me. They disobeyed their only father, which is the fifth commandment. And so, if you break one point, point, you're guilty of all, as we know in the book of James. And they broke the ten commandments, and therefore they sinned. Now, immediately we see a gross change come over them. Suddenly they were ashamed of the very body that is in the similitude of God. They looked and something that had been beautiful, normal, natural, wholesome, and good was ugly and had to be covered up, and they were ashamed of it. And the Augustinian guilt complexes with which most of us have grown up, and those guilt complexes and wrong teachings, which are now being corrected in the wrong way by entirely too much information without knowledge when it comes to sexuality, etc., and you cannot pick up a magazine including Reader's Digest or any women's magazine or men's magazine, without some kind of a sex article in it. It won't sell if it isn't there. So there's a massive outpouring of knowledge or information without really the wisdom and the kind of knowledge that God would have to temper it today. But previous to that time, how many millions of marriages have been completely destroyed because of that whole satanic attitude that came along under the church and from the days of August and others of Augustus, I guess I should say, and of the various guilt complexes that some of the religious leaders have put upon people. It's a fascinating story. But immediately when God called out, they were hiding. It said the eyes of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves aprons or skirts, and they were hiding. And God said, why are you hiding? And Adam said, I was afraid because I was naked. Why should he ever realize that he was naked? And why suddenly fear directed toward God? What did he have to be afraid of? All of a sudden, he was no longer neutral. Now God was foreboding. God was threatening. He didn't want God around him. He felt guilty. He was polluted. He didn't want to look upon the face of God or even hear his voice. An original sin comes along, which was, as I've described, all of these methods in which they broke the Ten Commandments of God, and not as much a dramatic change as the awareness or the bringing to the fore, the making alive inside human nature, that attitude of innate hostility toward God was there. Now, very important point. I'll cover it very quickly. Satan the devil cannot broadcast through the air. He cannot project his mind power or his magnetism or his personality or his influence or his attraction or his temptation away from himself more than like I might uh, try to tempt you in this room that you can hear my voice. If you can be in his immediate presence, and I doubt if you ever have been or you'd know it, then he could perhaps do that to you. Proofs, there are many. Go back to pre-creation of the great battle when Satan tried to ascend up above the stars of God in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Where was Satan when, when uh, the book of Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve were created? In the garden. How did he appear? Visibly, in person. Job, the first and second chapter. A day came when the sons of God presented themselves before God, and Satan came among them. And God said, where have you been? He said, oh, walking to and fro in the earth. 
and up and down in it. Have you seen my servant Job? Where was Satan? On the earth, walking to and fro, covering the earth, enveloping the earth, influencing the whole world? No, in one place at one time. Where was he when he was in heaven? In one place at one time. Revelation, the twelfth chapter when it said that he drew a third of the stars of the heavens, etc. You see Satan as a personal being in one place at one time. Now, it does have legions or millions of demons that are able, of course, to influence people, but Satan the devil, as I've said time and again, does not have a counterpart or a counterfeit of God's Holy Spirit. He is not able to project his power or his influence a million miles away from himself or even one mile away from himself. How can it say otherwise in James 4 and verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you? It does not say tune him out. It doesn't say don't pay attention to his broadcast. It says resist the devil and he will flee away from you. Don't you believe for one instant then that when your little babies are born, and they take their first breath of life, that they breathe in a part of the nature of Satan the devil. It isn't true. It just is not true. Human nature, bad enough all by itself. But now let me give you some of the good news. Believe it or not, there is some good in human nature. It said there in the first chapter of the book of Genesis that God looked upon all of his creation, and behold, it was very good. Now, a few very important questions. What about these men I mentioned earlier? What about Abel and Seth and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? We heard reference in the sermonette to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and I won't turn back to it and read it. Are some of these people, a very large host of them actually, including the prophets of the Bible, going to be in the kingdom of God? Men like Daniel and Job and Noah, well, in the transfiguration. We see the example of Moses and Elijah and people like this who are already as if in vision in the kingdom of God. Are they going to be there? Answer, absolutely, our Lord and Savior said, You shall see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves, speaking to the Pharisees who he said sat in Moses' seat, cast out. Now, were they converted in the way we can be converted were they begotten with the Holy Spirit of God the Father? Answer, no. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ has the preeminence in all things, that he is the first begotten and the firstborn from the dead. Nobody ever, prior to the time of Jesus Christ of Nazareth coming to this earth in human flesh and being born of the Virgin Mary, had the Holy Spirit of God the Father united with the human spirit which created a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now, what do you say then? How would you explain how it is that by an instant, a flashing second of time in the resurrection to come, when the moldering bones of Abraham will suddenly become a spirit being, and Abraham will be as good and will be as perfect a spirit being and a member of God's family as any member of God's church during the New Testament era, including Paul or Peter, and may well have a job 
bigger than theirs in the kingdom of God. How do you explain it? If you do not explain that the building of human righteous character, even if it is according to the letter of the law of God, is important, it is valuable, it is efficacious, and it counts in God's book up in heaven above. You cannot say that the people like the Albert Schweitzers of the world, nurses, men and women whom I have known and many of whom I have not by the tens of thousands who have dedicated their lives to working with the crippled and handicapped children and the blind are evil and desperately wicked above all things and should abhor themselves and have never committed or never perpetrated or accomplished a single act or a deed that is worth diddly squat, as they say in Texas, or that one little drop of rain in the vastness of the ocean, or a mist that melts away in the sun. And yet that is a concept in many people's minds in God's church, that no matter how much good somebody accomplishes in their life, it is all erased, and God doesn't even know it's there. He takes no account of it. It doesn't stack up to do you a bit of good at all because you haven't yet been baptized. You're not a member of God's church. And so we haul out a scripture like, as I said, Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Here is the cry of the prophet Isaiah on behalf of the entire sinning nation of Judah saying no matter what we accomplish because our leaders have gone astray, we've descended into idolatry, we're filthy in your sight. It is a heartfelt thought, but does that apply? to every human individual who has absolutely spent his life. And like the ladies you heard about in the sermonette, were they baptized members of God's church? Did they know about the Sabbath? And yet they embarrass us to death with their example of loving their enemies. Can you then, as a human being made in the image of God, illustrate and demonstrate in your life some of the qualities of your God even though you have not yet been baptized. Yes. You know, this is the very profound basis of a question that has bothered a lot of people for a long time and which has led some people down the false avenue because of the past teaching of God's church of concluding that people in other churches like Baptists, Methodists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, etc. are also Christian. You know why? Because the former doctrine, the idea about human nature forces them to no other conclusion because there's no other middle ground from which they can choose and they can't understand it. They say, here are good people, here are sacrificing people, here are loving and forgiving people and kind people and people nursing the blind and the deaf and little crippled children and putting me to shame with their example. No, they're not Christian, but they are good people. Yes, there is something good about human nature. God looked at human nature, at Adam and Eve, and he said, Behold, it is very good. Human nature is a mixture of good and evil, and there was a little bit of good even inside of Adolf Hitler. A little bit of good was buried deeply in there somewhere. be hard to find, but it was there. And the statement that there is a little bit of bad in the best of us and a little bit of good in the worst of us is really true after all. Does it count for absolutely nothing? The answer to that is no. It does count for something because obviously the character that was built, 
the lessons that were learned. In Moses' case, he learned the bitterest lesson of all at the end of his life. In Abraham's case, he learned a very bitter lesson at about age 99 and grew perhaps after that. He told a white lie, quote-unquote white, when he said, no, she's not my wife, she's my sister. He used human nature when he said, uh, you know, in human rationale, when he said we're going to pursue after the kings here and Amraphel and title and all the rest of them and take all his spoil and kill all these people and rescue a lot. He used his own human reason and he evinced some of the carnality of anger, of a desire for vengeance, and yet he was a great man. What about some of the men of history? How do you deal with them? George Washington. How do you deal with a man like Thomas Jefferson, if you've ever studied his life and read some of the things he wrote and what he said? Was he a good man or an evil, rotten, bad man because he didn't keep the Sabbath? No, he was a good man, very good man. Probably had some very bad points. He had some slaves, but he treated them well. But you know, people want to, want to uh, sort of uh, deprecate the great uh, heroes of the nation by saying George Washington was a slave owner. Well, he was, of course. But then so were some of the people who were members of God's church in the first century under the preaching of the Apostle Paul. What are we going to do with that? So you see, what the Bible really reveals about human nature is that human conscience does come into very great play and is very, very important. And it is not, believe it or not, a sin to have a little bit of self-confidence after all. A little bit of pride in one's children, saying, that is my flesh and blood. I produced that child, and that's a good, sweet kid. In spite of the fact there might be a lot of things you wish could be even more perfect or a little better about them, those are good children, and because they're not yet in God's church doesn't mean they're bad. And the idea of beating the devil out of them is obscene beyond belief. Yes, good can be accomplished by carnal people. Proof? For final proofs, let's turn to Ephesians 5 and verse 29. Ephesians 5 and verse 29. What are we to really feel about ourselves? Are we, with Job, to take that word abhor, that means to utterly detest? It is the strongest word in the English language. It means to feel revulsion and utter rejection toward. And so when we say, I abhor myself, are we to indulge in, safe, in self, I'm sorry, self-hatred? Ephesians 5 and verse 29 says this, So ought men, I'm sorry, I'll read up to it, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. Well, what do you know? It's not wrong for you to care for yourself, to nourish yourself, to cherish yourself, to love your life, to love the opportunity you have for life, to love some of the talents that God gave you and say if you dabble in painting or you have certain hobbies or you do a good job in the home or the yard or you're good with your hands or you can sing or you can play a musical instrument that you enjoy that and you're a little proud of it? Or do you, are you supposed to go around saying, I know that in me dwells no good thing. There is none good, no, not one. Their mouth is an open sepulcher. Why, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things, and who can know it? I abhor myself. I hate myself. Is that what we're supposed to go through every single day of our lives? It says here that we are to nourish and cherish our lives, our bodies, our own selves, even as the Lord, the church, for we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. 
In Matthew 19 and verse 19, back to where we were now in conclusion, Matthew 19, 19, Jesus said, Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Interestingly enough, the sermon and the sermon went together today. And I didn't have the faintest idea even who was preaching, let alone what he would be speaking about, and I'm sure the same was true of Ian. But maybe God had that in mind when we didn't. But isn't it interesting that the highest level of love that God places before us and, and upon which he, he calls is to love our neighbor, and your neighbor is defined, Christ himself did that as any other human being in the world, can, you know, with whom you come in contact or anyone you come across, and to love him as you love yourself. All right, if the doctrine that I have talked about today that has come to be lodged in the minds of many of God's people over the last decade or so is true, then you would have nothing but revulsion toward your neighbor, wouldn't you, if you go around having nothing but revulsion and abhorrence toward yourself. If you can't have a certain measure of self-respect, a concept that Jesus Christ inside of you put together with at least a little bit of goodness. Have you ever discovered any goodness in you? Have you ever sat in front of a television set and seen a swollen belly of a little child near starvation and found out you couldn't eat your meal and you broke out crying instead? You ever see even a little puppy run over in the street and cry and hurt for him? Isn't there any goodness in there at all? Can't you discover that and cherish that and say, yeah, there are a few little things inside of me that aren't all bad. I know there's some rough edges. I know there's some bad things, too. But on balance, i got a pretty good start on it. I've got some things that God has given me that are not all bad. I don't think that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, if he were to walk into this room right now today and say, Okay, Ted, it's my turn. You sit down. After he would preach to us the most moving and the most awesome and the most frightening sermon you'd ever heard and scold us, which I'm sure he would, and perhaps give us some correction that we richly deserve, you would leave this room on cloud nine. You would be so encouraged by his love for you of the what he was giving you and the correction. You'd say, oh, I needed that. And by the end of the sermon, you wouldn't walk out of here defeated. You'd be six feet high off the air, off the ground, because you would realize that Christ has given you a chance. And he says you're going to make it. So don't you ever believe again that you've got to go around hating yourself. Christ in you will take care of all of that, and you can have a certain amount of love and respect. You can honor and cherish your own self. You can have a certain amount of self-awareness and self-confidence without going so far that it becomes vanity or ego. It's got to be in balance. It's got to be in subjection to the Spirit of God. But no man ever yet, ever yet hated his own flesh, and you need to love your neighbor as you love yourself.